Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times and the Pointer Institute. On this podcast, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. Recently, Lane and I had the pleasure of connecting with Washington Post reporter Eli Saslow. Eli has published a book with stories he's written during the pandemic. The stories are told in the first person, and it's an incredibly intimate look at the struggles of the last 18 months. Thanks to Eli and to Tom Below Books here in St. Petersburg for allowing us to share this conversation. Today's topic, Voices of the Pandemic. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lane and I really want to get into some of the logistics and some of the things that you did to pull this off. So first off, like, how did you find all these people and how did you talk them into kind of cutting themselves open and burying their souls? Really, like whenever I'm trying to write about people, I'm saying to them, um, hey, I, I think what, what, what's happening to you right now really matters. And, and I think it's important. Um, and I think that maybe if other people can, can see it a little bit, can, can get come to understand it a little bit, they might, they might realize it's important too. And, and it might change the way in some small little, little fragment that they think about the world and, and people around them. So that's usually what I'm, I'm saying to people. Um, in terms of finding them, that's, uh, that's often trickier. I mean, a, a lot of these, you know, over the course of the last 18 months, um, I, I think I did 30 or so of these first person pieces. And, and for everyone, you know, I, I'm talking to uh, a half dozen to a dozen people in order to find the one person that I'm writing about. So, so often for me, it would start really with an idea like, uh, okay, what is, what's the tension point right now in the country? Where are we at with the pandemic? Um, for instance, you know, if one week, all of a sudden I'm beginning to see there are tons of masking controversies and, and, you know, in places where the police have said, we're not going to enforce mask mandates, really the burden is falling on these like essential workers who are um, store clerks who, who suddenly are having to tell people to put on masks. And, and and, you know, I became interested in that and, and what that experience is like. So then, you know, I start talking to people uh, who are store clerks. I, I start looking at data of where are more of these confrontations happening. Um, I joined a Facebook group for, for essential workers in the time of COVID and started reading people telling their own stories. And through all that, I, I talked to, you know, maybe 10 people who were in that situation. Some of them almost sounded like it was in real time, like the man in the food line here in Florida, where he's like, wait a minute, the line's moving. And I'm like, oh my God, was he like on the phone with him? Like while the line was moving or then the lady who was like, I can't catch my breath. I'm gonna have to come back to this because she was so sick. Like how, how did that work in terms of like, what what medium were you interviewing them on? Or did they record themselves sometimes or? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, mostly I would say I was, I was on the phone, but I would also like with Lori who worked in the store in North Carolina, 
I would say to her during a shift, like, <clears throat> can you can you just put me on FaceTime and kind of turn the phone around and put me at the counter of the store and I can get a feel for what the place is like. Um, they were all in real time. When I was talking to Darlene, who was who was running out of breath, like I I started talking to her because I thought I was going to be doing a piece about somebody who had long COVID and she'd been sick for seven or eight weeks and and you know she wasn't getting better. But as as I talked to her, it turned out that over over a week or two weeks of conversation it became clear to her and then to me that she was getting worse um, and, and you know that that she was possibly dying and and so at first she would be able to be on the phone with me for an hour an hour and a half um, then it would become 30 minutes then 10 minutes then these sort of like frantic facebook messages um from the hospital and and you know in relaying the urgency of what was happening to her i i thought you know one of the best ways to structure and tell that story was to have that experience be part of reading the piece, like having her having her running out of running out of breath, running out of time, running out of energy, um, because that's how our conversations unfolded. In between our calls, I would talk to her son, who was taking care of her, because he would know things and remember things that I could then take back to Darlene and say, "Well, you know, Paul says this happened. Do you remember that?" And and it would refresh her memory in ways too. So, in some ways, the reporting was pretty traditional in that, like, you're trying to. Um, you know, basically just reach a real level of depth with the people that you're writing about. But of course, it became very different because in the end, rather than, you know, writing something myself, I would have a, like this clay, which was the transcripts. And, you know, hopefully maybe 12, 15,000 words of, of transcription from somebody. And then you know, rather than writing a piece, I would be trying to heavily condense, obviously, um, structure, pace, and, and lightly edit these conversations into monologues that that um, that hopefully had like tension and, and storytelling elements, but that were very much in these people's voices. So the in their own words that kind of grew out of, or I don't know if that was the only reason, but it grew out of the limitations of the pandemic. You you couldn't be in these places and kind of soak it all up. Yeah, to totally remove myself from the reader's experience of 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 these, these stories, like to have them feel like it was a direct interaction between them and the person they were reading about to sort of remove that, that barrier. And I, I think there's a lot of power in that. Like it, it was, uh, I was surprised and, and sometimes sort of humbled thinking about my own writing and my own ability to narrate that like hearing directly from, uh, from Lori in that store and having her tell that story would make the reader feel like their connection was with Lori. And, and that's, that's, a strong, that's a strong connection. Very intimate. I mean, that made you feel so intimate with your characters. And and some of that also, I think, was like when I was deciding who to write about, um, as we do all the time as journalists, was, was thinking about uh, thinking even more than usual about voice. And like, is this not only is something interesting happening in this person's life, but do they do they narrate their own life in an interesting way? Is this person going to feel alive? So um, I think I, I was listening for that maybe more than I would in in like a typical reporting situation. And definitely when I was going back through transcripts, if somebody said something in a way that just felt like really unique or unusual to me, or or just had like a great sense of place or voice, then I, I would I would really want to incorporate that into the piece. It, it was kind of hard to read them all at once, you know, over like two days, because when you space them out in the post and we were looking forward to them. And then when I sat down to read them all again, it was like, it was exhausting. You yeah, know? it's a lot, it's and a lot. I, think, I was trying to think what was different. And I think a lot of it was um, the intimacy itself, but also because it was deliciously unbalanced, you know, you didn't yep. have to show both sides or filter it. It was, so, there was so much outrage. You know, the challenge with that, with these first person pieces is that they, they, um, 
you're not going to get multiple perspectives, right? Like if, if I was writing for the post about somebody who was being evicted, uh, you know, in the case of that Tuesday bar, it was her story. Like I, it was never, you were never going to leave that story and then go talk to her landlord who had evicted her. Like it just, that, that wasn't the form. So the idea of being able to, in some of the chapters of the book, sort of daisy chain and say, here's here's the anesthesiologist who's intubating somebody but now like let's flip it to the person on the other side who's about to be intubated or or you know let's let's do the the tenant and the landlord let's try to get a little bit more of like a 360 perspective on on some of these situations and what's happening um that felt important to me because definitely one of the shortcomings of of you know an oral history form is that you uh you lose that like you're you're inhabiting one person's perspective and you're doing it really fully so you know that makes things like basic fact checking complicated it, it makes but it also makes just the idea of like a fair getting a fair and balanced idea of what's going on complicated you're getting a really intense version of what's going on from one person's point of view but you you sort of lose the scale that way so i thought you know if i can if i can daisy chain these a little it brings in a little bit more scale can you talk a little bit about the fact checking because i was thinking about that the moment when the woman got evicted and then she'd been beaten by her boyfriend or something like that. And I was thinking, does he have to go pull that police report and talk to the boyfriend and like verify all this? Like, uh, Yes, like, yeah, I mean, but it was, it was really complicated. I mean, in part because I'd be asking people to send me the documents of their lives, right? Like, uh, Oh, we're talking about this conversation that you have with somebody over text. Could, would you mind just screenshotting and sending me the text? Because you know that maybe maybe I'm going to incorporate that somehow. Um, oh, you got evicted. Uh, can I like? Will you send me the paperwork? Will you send me the landlord's text? And in that case, I would at least talk to the landlord to make sure. Like, I'm not getting catfished here, right? Like this. Like <laughs> she she got evicted. Like that. Uh. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, and so some of the fact checking had to happen outside the piece, like like where it's just for myself knowing and being able to tell my editors, yes, she got evicted on this day. We know she got evicted because of this, um, but it, it was more complicated in part because that kind of transparency couldn't be included in the stories, right? So so it it um, what it meant really was that a lot of fairness, like achieving what felt closer to fairness in these stories was not including more stuff, but excluding some stuff. So like with Tuesday, if she was going on and on about her landlord and the unfairness of how she'd been evicted, I couldn't give, I couldn't give him any voice in the piece. So I also wasn't going to, you know, have the piece focus on her interactions with him. So, you know, it, it, it was, it was trying to think about balance that way too. What was the reaction from the, the folks that you profiled? Were they happy? Were they angry? Were they... You know, it happens sometimes, uh, or at least it does to me, where I will write something um, that I feel like is honest and true and right, not just factually, but is like, um, like I got it right. And and one of the people that I wrote about doesn't feel the same way and, and feels feels like 
you were here for these things and I can't believe this is what you, this is what you took from it. And that's, um, it's like a painful and unfun experience, but it sometimes is part of, of what happens. Not most of the time, hopefully, but it happens in, in, in these stories, I think in part because they were, um, you know, all of the words that were in the stories were words that the people had said, like they were their words. I, I think all of these people felt like uh, they reflected what they were going through. That was important to me, especially in this case, because it's, you know, they're their stories. I mean, it's, they're very clearly their stories. So, you know, one, one of the interesting things for me though, was as a reporter, I learned to be a lot more patient, mostly because I, I had to keep people on the phone. Like my only chance of in the end, ending up with like a good strong piece was I had to have a lot of a lot of clay. I, I had to have a lot of transcription and I, I had to keep people talking. And sometimes frankly I'd be on the phone with one of the people I was writing about and, and I would think this like there's no way I'm gonna write about this thing that we're now talking about. This is a this is a total waste of time. And sometimes I would then go back through the transcripts and sort of be shocked that like my initial judgments had been so wrong. Like I would I would think that I was being led down this like useless tunnel. And in fact, like the heart of the story was in that useless tunnel. There, there was one doctor in North Dakota who, uh, you know, small, small town, he was the only doctor there. This was a community that was like heavily in denial of the virus. Uh, a lot of people were dying. He was the only one to treat everybody. Um, and two of his patients, his parents uh, had died of, of the virus and, and many other people in his life. So, you know, in, in our conversations, I wanted to talk about his patients, what was happening there culturally, like all of these different things. And he wanted to talk a lot about World War II. He's super into World War II. And, and by the third day that we were like two hours into World War II conversation, a, a part of me inside would just be like, what are we doing here? Why are we not talking about your parents that were in the nursing home? You know, it's just, it, it would, uh, I just, I didn't get it. But then as I went back through the notes and was reading all of our conversations about World War II, I realized that one of the things he was telling me was that his parents, like one of the great prides of their life was that they had delayed their own wedding until they could get enough sugar rations to bake to bake a wedding cake. And, and that this idea of like communal sacrifice had been so close to the heart of who they thought they were as Americans. And then they had died in part because the other people that they loved in this community didn't want to wear a mask and didn't, didn't, want, to, didn't want to delay doing anything. And, and so as I went back through the transcripts, I was like, this is, this is actually the thing. Uh, and and I, I was not smart enough to see it in real time. So I, I, I hope some of those lessons about just allowing things to be a little bit more digressive and being more patient in conversation will stick. Is there somebody's story that particularly stays with you? I mean, I don't, I don't know if you have a favorite per se. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think I have a favorite, but I definitely have like five or so that, um, that stay with me. And I think will always just like personally stay with me. Um, there was a woman named Francine Bailey. She worked as a nurse's aide at a, at a, at a, at a nursing home in Hartford, Connecticut, early on in the pandemic, they had no PPE. She, she like lives with very little margin in her life, um, had to keep going to work, even though she knew it probably wasn't a good idea. Uh, got sick, was, was like, tried to be so smart about quarantining in her own room, but she, you know, she lives in a multi-generational house because it's a, you know, low-income family, they're combining all their hourly wages together. So you know, she's in a house then sick with like her sister, her mother, all these kids trying to stay in her room as she's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and then started having panic attacks because she couldn't breathe. During one of these panic attacks, ran out of her room and and her mother, just being a mother, tried to comfort her. Uh, and and it, at least in Francine's conclusion, in that 
five minute interaction, um, she she passed the virus to her mother. And, and then after Francine had been to the hospital and was home trying to recover, she would be in the upstairs bedroom and she would like lie down and listen through the floorboards to her mother who was quarantining in the downstairs bedroom and would hear the cough that, that sounded just like her cough. And, and she knew that um, based on, on her pre-existing conditions and everything else, her mother was very unlikely to make it. Um, and she didn't. The guilt of that, I, I think like the, one of the great cruelties of a virus is, is that it's, it doesn't just, it doesn't spread from nowhere. Like we, we pass it to each other. So uh, guilt also was a really thematic thing in, in, in these conversations with people who worried about who could I hurt, who, who could hurt me and who did I hurt? And, and for Francine, she's still spiraling, trying to figure out how to live with that. Um, so that's one definitely that, that sticks. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. I'd started to hear about this happening and I knew I wanted to try to do a piece that explored guilt. Um, and so I started, you know, doing uh, a bunch of different things, but one thing was clip searches by searching through obits. Like I spend a, a, a shocking and sad amount of time in my job on legacy.com searching, searching, searching through, through obits. Uh, but in, in the obit for Francine's mother, Francine had said in there that she was sick and that she had passed it to her mother. Um, and so I found many obits like that, uh, tragically, and, and talked to many of them, but pretty quickly with Francine, um, you know, that, that story stood out. There's another piece in this collection that's about a guy named Tony Green, who also passed the virus to a lot of people he loved, but sort of from an opposite place of, if not a full COVID denier, he was a heavy minimizer of the risk, um, uh, felt politically like it had been entirely overblown and, and convinced many people in his family in Texas to get together despite state mandates otherwise. And, and they all came to his house and spent the weekend there and, and people started to get sick. And pretty much everybody who'd been at this gathering got sick, including uh, Tony's father-in-law, who he he loved and, and was really close to, and, and his father-in-law died. Tony also was just uh, insanely sick and, and in the hospital for a long time. So a, a different version of sort of um, him also suffering the guilt of like, how had he fallen down a rabbit hole of, of disinformation and, and convinced himself that this was not the risk that uh, the medical world was telling him it was. Some of our colleagues really wanted me to ask you, like, and I'm curious too, you're, you're there, everybody in the world is dumping on you, their rage, their anger, their frustration. You're talking to people who are dying, who just lost people who died. It's the saddest year in anybody's life. But what do you do to process that, that sorrow and sadness and rage? Being, being in like proximity to pain uh, can be hard and can be taxing. And so like some element of self-care is, 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 is smart and, and being thoughtful about it is smart. But, you know, for me, that's like, go for a hike or, or go off a run or um, spend time with like, you know, my kids, like I'm lucky to have a life with a lot of levity and, and, uh, and, and love. So that's really helpful. Um, the other, I think bigger thing is it, for me is remembering that like, we're, what an enormous uh, privilege that for us, the stories end. So, so always trying to remember that like the real risk um, in, in an act of journalism is always taken by the people that we that we're writing about, uh, and and also the the 
you know, the, the real pain and the real experience is always on, on that end. So I guess I try to then take that um, and use it as fuel kind of in the writing process to make sure, am I doing justice to this person and their experience? Um, and, and am I getting it right? During a year when like a lot of people don't have work and are losing their homes and are losing people they care about, I'm getting to do a job that feels important to me. And that's like, that's a remarkable gift. So the truth is, I think if, if I had spent the last year and a half not doing this, if I, if I hadn't been able to find my way into stories or conversations that made me feel, I would be a little bit bereft at Syracuse, although I, I don't like throwing it under the bus, but like there's, there was a sense sometimes in, in journalism school there that as a journalist, you're supposed to operate almost at some kind of remove from the people or the stories that you write about. And, and you know, you're, you're, you're not supposed to feel too, too much. And, and for me, I think like the whole way to find stories and to do work that's powerful is to put yourself in a position where you feel things. Because if we don't, if, if we're not curious about the people we write about, if we're not moved in some way, um, if we're not like a, a little bit screwed up after seeing things or having some little conversation, how can we ever hope that, that, that like the people who read the stories are gonna feel anything. They're never even talking or meeting these people. So I think like we have to find ways to get into places where we can feel something and, and not in the way that we're advocates for the people that we write about, but in the way that we're trying to understand them and we're trying to understand their circumstances and trying to translate that in a way that other people can maybe understand them. Thanks for listening to this episode. And of course, Eli's book is available at Tumblr. They can ship anywhere. Don't forget, you can find other episodes on pointer.org slash right lane. And please join our Facebook group. This podcast was produced by Jesse Locke. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.